move forward. Move forward, yeah. Welcome to NeuroFriends, a podcast about the mind, brain, and whatever else we want to talk about. This week, our guest wanted to make extra certain that I point out that he's not a neuroscientist, technically. Uh, He is, however, a psychiatrist, and he works on some pretty cool stuff. Before we bring him out, let me introduce our student host for this episode. I'm here with Vin Tan. Vin, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Hey friends, I am currently a freshman studying, well, I'm undeclared right now, but I'm thinking about studying cognitive neuroscience um, with a minor in computer science. What I do in terms of neuroscience is um, I'm a research assistant. So basically, if you've heard of the marshmallow experiment, um, would you rather have one marshmallow today or two marshmallows tomorrow? Every human has a different rate at which they prefer later rewards to immediate rewards. I mean... I know I prefer immediate rewards. <laughs> yeah, most people most people do. Um, but we can, by researching this, we can apply it to a lot of impulsive behavior, such as like drug addiction, overeating, and like gambling, and things like that. So you mean ways people can wait better for rewards? Yeah, kind of like be more patient, have more self-control, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. We actually, in preparing to look at the study we're going to look at today, looked at it uh, some neuroimaging studies, so brain scanning studies. But today, since our guest's expertise is a little bit more in the clinical realm, meaning he's what PhDs would call a helpful doctor, uh, as opposed to... Whatever. Okay. (laughs) So, so yeah, he helps people in a clinical setting, and we're really going to be focused on outcomes. Like, does, does a treatment work for patients? First, what did you and Dr. Eric talk about? So the study that we talked about is called Psilocybin Produces Substantial and Sustained Decreases in Depression and Anxiety in Patients with Life-Threatening Cancer, a Randomized Double-Blind Trial. And that was conducted by Roland Griffiths and colleagues at Johns Hopkins University. Basically, um, in a controlled setting, using magic mushrooms to treat depression and anxiety. Magic mushrooms, huh? Mm-hmm, magic mushrooms. No kidding. So In a controlled setting, kids. <laughs> in a controlled setting. So, yeah, this ends up being super important. And in the next, you know, however long, we're going to walk through how they go about really, you know, making this safe for the patients that they're testing this on. So do not go out and do a bunch of mushrooms. Yeah, we'll just let, we'll just let the study speak for itself. <laughs> Let's do that. What's up, NeuroFriends? We have a special guest here today. Eric, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Eric Chan. I work for the University of California, San Francisco, UCSF. I'm a psychiatrist, and I am a medical doctor who specializes in the treatment, diagnosis of uh, mental diseases. And I also have a subspecialty in forensic psychiatry. Mm. Could you tell us a little more about the forensic 
psychology? Sure. So um, forensic psychiatry is really anywhere where psychiatry and the law intersect. So you can serve as an expert witness for the courts trying to answer questions like, you know, was someone insane by the definition of not guilty by reason of insanity, or sometimes uh, forensic psychiatrists can work in correctional settings. So with people who are incarcerated and really anything in between, anywhere where you might see mental health and the law intersecting. I work for UCSF, but I'm kind of under the umbrella of San Francisco General Hospital. In our clinic, we see really severely mentally ill people um, who have struggled with mental illness, uh, oftentimes chronically. So we tend to see a lot of people with schizophrenia, with really severe mood disorders like bipolar disorder, severe personality disorders, and oftentimes comorbid or or co-occurring really severe substance use disorders. People who are addicted to methamphetamine, to crack cocaine, to alcohol. What I do is I work with a team of case managers and we kind of try to provide wraparound services to these people who are severely mentally ill to try and meet them where they're at, uh, literally sometimes meaning going out and finding them on the street or in their single-room occupancy hotel or at the shelter and trying to get them to reduce their use of emergency services, to reduce their psychiatric or medical hospitalizations, and to really try to help them live the best lives that they can. And so my role generally is to prescribe medications, uh, oftentimes antipsychotic medications and antidepressants, mood stabilizers to try to keep these people as mentally healthy and as uh, stable as possible so they can really make it in the community. Hmm. And are these services usually free? Or who yeah, so um, uh, the people who we see are by and large insured by Medi-Cal, so uh, California's uh, version of Medicaid. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them have Medicare as well, but we see the uninsured or the publicly insured population. And uh, the patients come to us because they're referred to us by different organizations because they've been having a lot of hospitalizations or emergency contacts. Also, a huge proportion of the homeless population do suffer from mental illness. So I think understanding these people are actually really suffering, kind of understanding that, uh, that it is a huge struggle and it's, it's, it's really difficult for these people, I think can really help to kind of decrease people's immediate reaction that they often have when they you know, come to San Francisco and see that we have you know, a large homeless population and are struggling with treating them. I know you are working um, case by case, helping these individuals, but um, systemically, how can we reduce mental illness prevalence and homelessness in cities like San Francisco? Sure. I think. I think organizations like the one I work for really um, investing in preventative care for mm-hmm. these people, trying to get early intervention, get these people into early treatment, investing in different types of substance uh, use treatment, whether it's harm reduction or residential treatment programs. Putting the resources there will really help these people and on a broader public health standpoint have mm-hmm. a, a huge effect on the general health of the homeless population help probably move a large proportion of these people out of that situation. But it is compounded by a lot of issues that are kind of out of our control, like skyrocketing home prices and Mm -hmm. just the housing crisis in general that we have that some of the issues could really be solved if people were stably housed, but that becomes kind of less and less of an option for people in the city. Mm. 
Hospitalizations um, must be a very expensive state resource. By working with case managers and providing treatment, effectively you reduce state costs, is that correct? That's the goal, yeah. Our ratios of patients to providers is actually pretty low, but the comparative costs, like you were saying, of like repeatedly hospitalizing someone or repeatedly treating someone in emergency, psych emergency or the medical ER, that cost is huge compared to kind of having a group of people who are paid to try and help these people manage as an outpatient without having to have these repeated expensive contacts with the system. You know, ultimately, if these people don't get good care, that affects everyone's care Mm -hmm. um, at the end of the day. Now, I also heard that you worked with the incarcerated population. Could you talk more about your work with San Quentin? Sure. Um, During my fellowship, my forensic psychiatry fellowship, um, part of that was I would work with inmates at San Quentin, which is California's death row prison. Uh, So working with the condemned population there, as well as uh, at uh, the Marin County Jail. And so, you know, we got some exposure of uh, kind of seeing how healthcare is delivered, mental health care is delivered uh, to people who are incarcerated and the legal issues that arise when you're treating people who, let's say, are sentenced to death or lose some of their rights uh, as a result of being incarcerated Mm -hmm. and how you navigate that system can be complex sometimes. Mm -hmm. Without good treatment, really trying to rehabilitate someone who's been incarcerated, who's been involved in the criminal justice system, it's really difficult to kind of get out of that pattern that lands someone into the criminal justice system in the first place. Um, Really, I think that's why California Department of Corrections is now the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation because, you know, if you provide, hopefully provide good care to people um, and try to really help them to get whatever issues are causing them to kind of be in the criminal justice system under control, that we can reduce the risk of them winding back up in the criminal justice system. Because right now, um, there's a huge proportion of people who are incarcerated who have mental illness and really as a result of their mental illness they're incarcerated and if we can kind of treat them adequately hopefully we would prevent them from repeatedly getting incarcerated. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us a little more about the study you've chosen today? Sure. So I chose this study, which was published in 2016 in the Journal of Clinical Psychopharmacology, and it is called Psilocybin Produces <laughs> Psilocybin Produces Substantial and Sustained Decreases in Depression and Anxiety in Patients with Life-Threatening Cancer. Mm. Psilocybin, for those of you that don't know, are what we typically call uh, magic mushrooms. Uh, right. And so why did you choose this study? Well, I really became interested in this study um, because it was getting a lot of press. Like it was uh, on the New York Times. There was an article in the New Yorker that really discussed the results of the study and a lot of other popular news media. And I thought it was just really interesting because really the thought of using the active ingredient in in a drug of abuse, like uh, magic mushrooms, to help people with psychiatric problems was something that is pretty novel and unheard of. And when you kind of dig into the history and you read some of these articles about, like, how psychedelics or hallucinogens were used, you kind of also get a really interesting glimpse at the history of the use of these drugs as uh, treatment that date back um, pretty far. 
And so I thought it was kind of interesting to look at the kind of historical basis for the use of these treatments and, and how it's kind of making a resurgence now. Hmm. Could you kind of describe those studies and why this study is different than previous studies? Well, you know, historically speaking, magic mushrooms or psilocybin have been used, you know, since ancient times for different sorts of rituals and uh, kind of Mm -hmm. mystical experiences. And then the kind of active compound got synthesized in, I believe, the 1950s. And it was actually made available to people along with LSD, which is another psychedelic, for kind of use in various psychological disorders. But back then, I think the rigor of the studies was a little bit different, like kind of what was required to go into a a study about a drug for psychological disorders. And um, so the difference now is that now I think because these drugs became so popular and were used so widely in the 1960s with Mm -hmm. like counterculture and hippies, they got blacklisted and became Schedule One, which is the most controlled that a substance can be. And so it kind of got pushed underground and really stopped being used for any kinds of studies. So now that they're making a resurgence now, um, I think since the 1990s, when the FDA started approving these sorts of compounds to be used in studies, it's like a whole new world and a whole new level of rigor that we have to apply to use these sorts of drugs for studies. So could you give me um, a general rundown of this particular study? This study uh, recruited people who had a cancer diagnosis that was potentially life-threatening. They recruited 51 participants who had a, a cancer diagnosis, but also met the criteria for anxiety or depression. And so what they did was they split these uh, 51 participants up into two groups. And each group, they administered either a low dose of psilocybin, followed five weeks later by a high dose of psilocybin, or the reverse. Mm. Uh, The other group had a high dose of psilocybin first. And the participants were just told that they were going to receive this drug, but really no other significant details about what was going to happen or how much they were going to uh, receive. Mm -hmm. It seems like the people who were doing this study really were trying to as best they could, blind the participants to what they were receiving and to try and reduce some of the expectancy effects, meaning um, when people are in a study and they expect that they're going to receive some sort of drug, they can say that they had certain results because they expected to receive the drug, not necessarily because the drug had a particular effect. But because it's pretty obvious, I think when someone receives a high dose of mm-hmm. psilocybin, they were trying to at least reduce the effects by giving them two different doses and kind of comparing the, the effects of these two different doses at different times so that they could at least get rid of some of that bias that can happen with these studies. I see. So could we do a quick little role play of what a research subject would experience when coming into this study? Sure. When... The subjects were entered into the study. Um, they're actually I'm not sure. Uh, they're so. Uh, let's see. So they're enrolled into the study, and before their first psilocybin uh, session, each participant met with two session monitors who were staff members of the study, who would be present with them during 
the sessions where they would take the drug. And so they met with these monitors on two or more occasions. And they also, I think, underwent some testing to see what kind of baseline measurements they had on uh, measures of depression and anxiety, Mm -hmm. you know, prior to receiving the drug. Then, let's say you're one of the participants who was randomized to be in the group that received the high dose of psilocybin first. Um, You were taken to a room. I think it kind of like was made up to look like a living room kind of environment with classical music playing. And you put on a blindfold and you take the medication. And throughout the experience, for however many hours you're kind of in this room, you're continuously getting your blood pressure monitored and also answering questions about your experience. And let's see. The session monitors were really observing you mm-hmm. uh, to see what effect the drug was having on you and seeing if you're experiencing any anxiety or any kind of change in your perception of reality. Uh, if you're crying or yawning or feeling nauseated, the uh, session monitors would be monitoring you and seeing kind of how you were tolerating the effects of the drug. And then after seven hours uh, of the drug being administered, you would complete four different questionnaires to assess how you as a participant experienced the past seven hours of being Mm. on psilocybin. Mm. So what were the results of the study and what do we think these results mean? Right, so um, what the people who were um, studying this drug uh, set out to really measure was how did people respond on certain standard measures of depression and anxiety. They were really looking to see if there was either a clinically significant response, which would be a 50% or more decrease from their baseline kind of measures of depression or anxiety, or if the participants had actually symptom remission, which would be more than a 50% decrease, but also pretty much a, a normal score. They were really looking to see, did this experience of having these two sessions of psilocybin give you a clinical response or even remission in your depression or anxiety as measured by someone who's, who's rating you on these scales? And then they also had a bunch of different secondary measures, kind of taking a lot of uh, different surveys to see kind of if they were depressed or anxious, seeing if they had any mood disturbances, seeing if they had any kind of general psychiatric symptoms, and then measures relating to if they were still experiencing a lot of death-related anxiety, how meaningful they felt their life was, a lot of different secondary scales that they were looking at to see if um, this treatment had an effect on those. Hmm. So to summarize, it was found that these depression ratings like did decrease and it persisted? Is that correct? Yeah, so, um, so what they found was that there was definitely a difference in a variety of different measures between receiving the low dose, which is essentially like a placebo dose, like what we would think is like a not really effective dose of the drug and the high dose of the drug. And then they found that all the participants, or I mean, um, not all the participants. uh, So what they found was um, at six months, the response rate was like 78% of the participants actually had a clinical meaningful response in their depression symptoms. So reduced by at least 50%. 
and an 83% response in anxiety. So 83% of the participants showed, uh, you know, 50% mm-hmm. uh, decrease in that score, which is like a 50% improvement, which is um, pretty huge. They also found that at six months, um, the remission rate was also pretty high. So this is like actually people getting their symptoms in remission. Uh, 65% um, of the participants had a remission in their depression symptoms, and then 57% had a remission in their anxiety symptoms. Hmm. So in this sample of patients, the psilocybin proved to be statistically effective, but how, how generalizable do you think these results can be to the greater population? That's a really good question. So this study was looking specifically at anxiety and depression symptoms in patients with cancer and really anxiety and depression symptoms directly related to people's cancer diagnosis. And so if you were trying to generalize this particular study just to anxiety and depression and the general population, it really might not translate because it's a specific population that they were looking at. Now, there are other studies that, uh, kind of pilot studies that looked at uh, the use of psilocybin or LSD and just depression and anxiety and people with alcoholism. But for this particular study, I don't think you could necessarily generalize it to the general population. I think you also have to look at the types of people who participated in the study to see if you can generalize it. The participants in this study tended to be pretty homogenous. Uh, the vast majority, I think 96%, tended to be Caucasian or white, which means that maybe these results aren't uh, necessarily generalizable to people who are non-white. They were, by and large, college-educated or, or more. And they, I think uh, almost 50% of uh, the participants had had a prior experience with a hallucinogen or a psychedelic. And so, you know, if you were to try to say that this would work for everyone, it would kind of be hard to say because it only looked at a very specific type of participant. I will also say back in the 1950s, I believe, uh, they were doing a study of um, giving psychedelic drugs to prisoners to see if it would reduce their... Mm -hmm. um, rates of incarceration, recidivism, and um, different measures of um, antisocial personality or sociopathic tendencies. And what were the results of that? Well, uh, I think the results were actually positive that they did show that the hallucinogen actually did help. Mm. Uh, I I don't know the exact results, but it did help to um, kind of prevent them from reoffending. What makes this treatment different than the traditional antidepressants on the market right now? Sure. So I think what makes the studies so interesting is that uh, this is a total new novel class of of drug uh, than what we typically use right now. So right now we tend to use, at least the newer antidepressants are selective uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Really, they work on the brain to increase the amount of serotonin that's in the synapses, the kind of space between our neurons. Mm. And by doing that uh, over a long period of time, you know, we tend to say if you're on a a SSRI, a typical antidepressant that we use these days, you have to wait six to eight weeks before you might see an effect. And it has to be at an adequate dose. This is really different, um, even though the drug psilocybin works on the serotonin receptor and actually is what we call 
a partial agonist of the serotonin receptor. So it kind of sits on the receptor and it kind of alters it for a short period of time. And so really the main difference, I think, is that after just two doses of this medication, they saw six months of um, pretty significant sustained results, which is radically different than the way that we treat people now, which is, you know, uh, at least with medications, uh, giving someone a pill that they have to take every day and really having to wait to see an effect versus the sort of immediate effect that you, you see in this study. Now, could you explain what serotonin is and what um, relationship it has to depression? Sure. So serotonin is a neurotransmitter. It's used in a lot of different functions in the brain, but really it's hypothesized kind of in older studies that when people have, generally speaking, lower amounts of serotonin in their, you know, in, in these old studies, they would look at people's uh, cerebral spinal fluid, you know, do spinal taps and uh, kind of like look. And the hypothesis was born that like lower amounts of serotonin correlated with increased amounts of depression and anxiety. And so what we're trying to do with the traditional antidepressants that we use now is to, as best we can, increase the amount of serotonin that your brain sees that's like inside the brain in between the, the neurons in the brain. And somehow by increasing that amount of serotonin over time, the receptors in the brain change and that results in alleviating someone's depression and anxiety. Do we know the efficacy of SSRIs compared to a placebo? That's a good question. I think that, you know, in order to have a drug approved by the FDA, you have to really prove that it's safe and that it's effective. And generally that's done by kind of comparing the drug to a placebo in a placebo-controlled trial. And so, yeah, there are plenty of studies that show that um, different types of antidepressants like SSRIs, like Prozac, Zoloft, uh, Lexapro, that these are superior to placebo. But there's also some controversy that people say that drug companies only tend to publish the studies that show a positive result. Mm that maybe the benefit that we attribute to antidepressants is really due to majority due to the placebo effect. But in my practice, and I think it's generally accepted among psychiatrists that these medications are also very effective for depression and anxiety. I think what makes it a more interesting case is that cancer patients, they, you know, if they have severe disease, they don't necessarily have the amount of time to take an SSRI every day and hope that it has an effect because they, they might have really terrible disease burden. And so this is like a time sensitive sort of period for them. And so if there is, you know, the potential for something that works pretty much immediately to really address some of the core issues that underlies the anxiety or the depression associated with cancer, then, um, I think that this is a special circumstance that is really interesting. We know from these studies that this treatment worked on this sample, but I'm sure our our friends may be worried about the possible side effects of psilocybin. I'm, I'm sure they've heard stories of bad shroom trips and um, things like that. Do you want to talk about the side effects? Well, I would say 
the authors of this study, they really uh, were looking to see if there were any adverse effects because really in this phase of them looking at this drug, they're, they're trying to kind of parse out what adverse effects there might be for this drug. And so they looked at blood pressure and they did find that with a high dose of psilocybin that people did have changes in their systolic and diastolic mm-hmm. blood pressures. Um, and then they also found that participants who were receiving psilocybin also experienced more nausea. And some some people did experience anxiety and some uh, transient or kind of time-limited paranoid symptoms. So that is uh, definitely a risk. And I think that, you know, that I would take caution to, for people to, to say this is not something that's promoting people to just use this drug uh, recreationally or kind of on their own to try to, to self-treat their depression or anxiety, even if they have cancer. This was done in an extremely conscientious and rigorous and um, highly monitored way. So it's not something that I think people should read and, and run out and go kind of treating themselves by taking a bunch of mushrooms. Hmm. So if this drug were to be marketed as a pharmaceutical drug, what do you think that would look like? It's like you say it would only be applied to patients like these with a terminal illness such as cancer? I think there are a lot of different applications. There's applications, you know, different studies looking at uh, this drug being used for treatment of uh, substance use disorders, uh, Mm. looking at its use for just regular depression potentially for PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, or OCD, obsessive-compulsive disorders. I think that there are definitely going to be a lot of barriers to having this just be on the market. Part of it is the historical context of these drugs having such a kind of negative connotation because of the widespread abuse of these drugs in the past. And because currently these drugs are, like I said, Schedule One. Uh, which is extremely high, they're illegal and um, extremely highly regulated by the government. So in order to even have these drugs available to be used in these studies, the authors had to jump through a lot of hoops to get the government to approve, the DEA to approve, the review boards who make sure that patients are being and studies are being treated safely and, and fairly. There's a lot of hurdles to mm-hmm. this drug being kind of made openly available. So I, to answer your question, I guess, in the future, if this is made available, I think that it would be, it would probably be used in a very controlled environment. But I, I'm not really sure how exactly it would be rolled out because, like I said, these drugs are still considered to be illegal. And so the hurdles it would take for a pharmaceutical company to produce this en masse would be huge. Mm-hmm. So in this study, the pharmaceutical treatment was paired with a session monitor. And so do you think once this is, if this is a pharmaceutical treatment, would, would the patients have to have kind of sort of a, a guide, like a spiritual guide, like in this study? Right. I think that definitely that would be a component of using this in treatment is like having someone, whether it be like, you know, a physician or... Uh, family or someone to kind of be present for the duration of of the experience, I think that that would be something pretty crucial because, like we said, people can have anxiety related to the drug itself and, and paranoid reactions to the drug. And so mm-hmm. it's not something that I think that would be necessarily like um, particularly safe for someone to just kind of 
take home and use on their own. Mm -hmm. And there's also always the risk of something like this being diverted, used for recreational purposes, sold, um, right. things like that. Hmm. And assuming that there is funding for this treatment and more support is like thrown at it, how can we um, combat the cultural stigma against the use of psilocybin and other hallucinogenics? Sure. I think that, you know, the best way to combat stigma is to educate yourself, to really um, kind of look past what we see in popular culture, what we hear in popular culture, and to really look at studies like you're doing, to kind of look at people's experiences, um, look at the testimonials that people had and some of the articles that have been written about this, and sort of looking past uh, what we see as the typical use of magic mushrooms and um, to, to see kind of, or the kind of cultural and historical path that these substances have taken, but also like how they're being used now for legitimate therapeutic purposes. Mm. So in this study, psilocybin was proven to be effective for treating depression. What are your ideas for follow-up studies in order to understand this treatment more? Well, I think that we're starting to do more studies in uh, neuroimaging, so kind of understanding how this drug, because, you know, back in the 50s um, when this drug was being used in, in various studies, we didn't have the kind of technology to be able to, like, really look uh, at neuroimaging studies, at fMRI studies, and to see kind of, like, how these substances are actually impacting the brain and getting a sense of how they're actually working. So I, I can see kind of more of those types of imaging studies taking place, as, mm -hmm. especially as we start to understand more about how the brain is connected in different and complex ways. That could potentially lead to ways in which we could develop different drugs, uh, but kind of related to the same way that psilocybin works on the brain, but like, you know, have companies produce like different drugs that have similar effects on the brain itself and see if maybe there are studies that could be done with like new compounds that work similarly, but maybe don't have as much of a potential for abuse. So um, what is your main takeaway from this study? So my main takeaway from the study is that there are different avenues of treatment besides what we traditionally think of as treatments for depression and anxiety, uh, particularly in this population of people who are struggling with a, a life-threatening or, or potentially life-threatening diagnosis of cancer. And that really that this treatment has been put underground or kind of not looked at because of a variety of cultural and historical factors. And that really this is sort of a renaissance uh, right now of looking at this class of, of psychedelic drugs, of hallucinogens, that are potentially a very powerful and long-lasting treatment for disorders that we, I think, are still really struggling to adequately treat, at least with medications. It's just another potential avenue that we can hopefully explore and um, kind of see past the stigma of to really look and see if there's a potential therapeutic benefit to. Thank you. Thank you for coming in, Eric. That's all the time we have today. Um, we hope to see you next time, NeuroFriends. <laughs> or like, what was, the, what was the outro? Yeah, you can, yeah, so you can do two <laughs> or three if you want. Like, we'll take, we'll take the best one. Um, okay. 
Um, that's all the time we have today, folks. Thank you, Eric, for coming. And we'll see you next time on NeuroFriends. Okay. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs>